Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to Pivotal Insights. This week, Dormain and I chat with IOPipe co-founder and CEO, Adam Johnson. IOPipe is a serverless DevOps platform to help teams building and running event-driven architectures manage and monitor their code. We talk with Adam about the challenges of monitoring serverless environments, how IOPipe approaches that challenge, and we also explore the emerging use cases for serverless and the larger serverless ecosystem. Enjoy. Serverless, it's kind of a thing. Um, IOPipe kind of dove in directly to the serverless market and, uh, you know, smartly you guys went after an area that has been noted as one of the challenges around any kind of serverless architecture, which is monitoring, right? You suddenly have containers that are extremely ephemeral. And so anything that's like, oh, we'll just go back to the machine and pull out the logs and we'll see what happened is like, oh yeah, about that. Um, so, you know, I, one of the things I wanted to kind of understand is just like getting into it. What's what's the background that kind of brought you into building a um, kind of what initially was mostly Lambda focused monitoring tool. Um, and then we'll get into kind of like plans from from there, but just the origins in the beginning, what happened? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my co-founder and I, Erica Windish, um, she's our CTO. Uh, we, we kind of, uh, formed up, uh, team teamed up, uh, back in 2016. And, uh, we were interested in the serverless space. We had a number of ideas and we started building some, some stuff and, uh, we very quickly wanted to, you know, validate our ideas to make sure that, you know, the things we're building were things that people actually needed. And so we reached out to, you know, as many Lambda production users as we could find back in 2016, in the summer of 2016. Um, we found about 30 or 40 uh, companies who were using Lambda at the time uh, that, that were willing to talk to us. Um, we kind of interviewed them, um, asked a lot of questions about like, what are they building? What are the different use cases? What are the technologies they're using? Uh, and what are the pain points? Um, and that helped us identify patterns uh, as to like, you know, what are the valid use cases here? Um, what are the adoption challenges? And we very quickly identified, you know, visibility, lack of visibility as the ultimate problem for, I'd say like 29 out of 30 of the, the customers we are the companies we talked to um, had the same exact um, phrasing almost that they just have a really a big lack of visibility. Lambda seemed like a big black box. Um, it, you know, the promise of it is it's very easy. You can just push your code out and it's supposed to work. But what if things don't work, right? What if there are third-party services that you're relying on um, that suddenly have network issues or a database goes down uh, or some third-party service like authentication um, stops working or your own code? Like, what if these things don't work? How do you know? And how do you identify what the cause is when those problems arise. And there really weren't any good tools at the time to get that kind of visibility. As you said, the existing tools that people would traditionally use don't work because they rely on installing an, an agent on a server or a VM or in a container or having some sort of sidecar process. And that just doesn't work in a function uh, because it's, it's very ephemeral. You don't have access to install anything in the system. Um, so we decided to attack that problem 
And that's what we've been focused on for the last two years um, is, is solving that problem. And we, we took the approach of instrumenting your code. So we created some open source libraries in a variety of languages. You add that to your function. Uh, we try to make it as easy as possible. So you just basically add your library um, and with no code touches, uh, you can you can have in some in some basic instrumentation. And from that entry point, we're able to see um, not only code level stuff, but also like infrastructure level stuff. We can reach down into the actual Lambda subsystem and see which container it's on, uh, memory CPU utilizations, um, network utilization, things like that. Um, so we grab all of that data, send it off to our service, and then um, provide that back to users in a real-time view, uh, and then provide them with tools to kind of query through all of that data and you know create alerts and, and things of that nature to get a better sense as to what's going on. So what have you seen in terms of the the ongoing challenges that as folks adopt Lambda and serverless architectures, um, what kind of usage patterns have you noticed and, and how has your tool kind of helped fit in to support those? Yeah, there's there's still a number of challenges um, for serverless. It's still very early, I would say. Um, when I talk to, it depends on who I'm talking to, but um, I, you know, last month I talked to a room full of VP of engineers at a variety of companies ranging from kind of large scale, large scale startups to um, very traditional, like, large scale internet. And a lot of them were very surprised to hear that there are companies running like real production workloads in uh, serverless. Um, you know, a lot of people out there still think that serverless is kind of a toy. It's only good for cron jobs uh, or like very basic tasks um, that, you know, that uh, aren't running anything really serious. But there are a very good number of companies who are running um, Lambda and other other cloud uh, provider services at scale in production. And we see that growing. Um, and we see a number of use cases there. So typically we see a pattern um, or kind of a, a, a path that most companies follow where they start with those very simple cron jobs, um, scripts that would normally run every hour or every day. It doesn't really make sense to run those in a server or mm -hmm. a VM or a container. Um, then you have to maintain that operating system just for this thing that runs only you know a few times a day. Uh, instead, it makes a lot of sense to take that script, put it into Lambda or Google Cloud Functions or Azure Functions, wherever, and and then just use their built-in scheduling to to run that. Right, that's kind of a set it and forget it kind of thing. Very low maintenance on that. Um, it's easy for people to understand. They typically don't have to make any changes to those scripts um, to make it work. So that's kind of the entry point where we see a lot of people using serverless today. Um, and that kind of is the gateway drug for uh, getting comfortable with it. And the next step we typically see are companies looking at workloads, existing workloads that may need to solve some challenge, whether that's a uh, capacity planning issue or a uh, price issue. And one of the big use cases there is definitely in the data processing, data streaming side. Um, so a lot of companies have some sort of workloads that are you know, processing data, batch jobs, things like that. Uh, and if those happen to be very spiky, um, it's very hard to predict 
when those spikes occur. So you either, you either end up with like a cluster of uh, VMs or containers that are processing that data. And if they can't keep up with the data that's coming in, then you have a queue that's building up. It takes a long time to process that data. Uh, or you have to over-provision that cluster of workers and you end up overpaying uh, for all those workers. So that's kind of a big challenge for a lot of companies that is a very good fit for serverless functions. You can take those workers, as long as the data can be processed in um, chunks that are five minutes or less, um, it's very easily adaptable to functions as a service. Um, so you can take those workers, run it in functions as a service, it will automatically scale out as you get bursts of data coming in, and it will automatically scale down as there are lulls in the data coming in. Um, so you end up solving two problems by moving to serverless, which is um, capacity planning and the pricing, right? So you're not overpaying, so you're getting nearly 100% utilization, uh, and you basically are removing the need for the queue because um, the workers will just appear as needed as data comes in automatically. Um, so th that's the kind of st second stage that we see. And the third stage is um, really like API-driven, um, you know, customer-facing uh, applications, whether those are mobile or desktop or, or web applications. Um, that's kind of the final stage where we see a lot of those are typically greenfield applications um, where they're, you know, built serverless from day one. Uh, and we're starting to see more of those, but that's definitely... Um, the later stages of adoption for for companies who are getting familiar with service. So with, it's interesting that like the greenfield, the net new applications is like the third and final frontier, or at least so far, right? And that sort of existing workloads are actually the more natural starting place because that's not usually what people think of when they think of you know, say cloud native applications are like, oh, cloud native, well, because it's <laughs> right. born in the cloud um, as its primary mm -hmm. residency. Um, and, you know, so I, to me, that's just really interesting how that, uh, that paradigm can be totally turned on its head for something like serverless. I'm also curious, like, you know, about what, what the implications could be there if you're getting rid of that queue, like, what are the ramifications across other other teams that had basically um, built dependencies on that queue being there? Like, it's like a weird optimization around, um, you know, it's it's actually less efficient. But then we started to count on that inefficiency, <laughs> right. and now we have to re-architect everything else and and store that data somewhere else because, like, we actually depended on that queue right. sitting there right. um, yeah. for some other reason, right? Like, I don't know. Um, and I know this isn't necessarily like IOPipe's, you know, focus, but I'm just, the way you've described this evolution that folks are following, these are the kinds of questions that that pop into my head. You also mentioned, you know, um, like Google function and the, the Azure cloud functions and stuff. I'm totally botching the names, but, you know, you guys started with Lambda and, you know, so one area I'm curious on is like, do you see yourself kind of expanding beyond to some of the different serverless platforms? Um, you mentioned that there is some, clearly some integration down to that actual, you know, serverless platform 
level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not just like, oh, well, you can point it anywhere. Um, you know, what's, what's the thinking of, around that? Like, where do you sort of see more traction happening to prioritize where you guys are going to focus? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Like we are, we're a small startup still and, you know, focus is a, is a really important thing for, for all startups, I believe. Um, cause you have very limited resources and if you start spreading yourselves too thin, you know, you, you lose your ability to, uh, to innovate very quickly and, um, and to make mistakes, right? Um, a big part of running a startup in, and finding your product market fit is um, doing some experiments, getting it out there to users very quickly uh, in a minimal form, and then learning from that, right? Is this solving the problems for the users uh, or is this the, the wrong approach? And, and making the, the decisions to um, either go, you know, double down on that particular feature or use case or... Uh, whether to pull back uh, as it may not solve the problem. If you spread yourself too thin as a startup, you're not able to do that as easily, right? If you want to add support for a new feature and you have to do that for a number of programming languages and cloud providers, you know, that certainly weighs you down quite a bit. So that's what we're uh, at IOPipe very uh, conscious of when we make decisions um, about what, what languages and what platforms we do support um that being said we have expanded our own um platform to support a variety of languages um in the last year alone you know a year ago we had only basically node js support for iopipe and this year uh today we have golang java um and python um so we added three languages in a year that's pretty fast um we try to make things as modular as possible in IOPipe so that it becomes very easy for us to experiment and add new things like that. And the same thing is true for other cloud platforms. Um, so today we only support AWS Lambda, um, but it's pretty straightforward for us to start adding other platforms as well, like uh, Azure Functions and Google Cloud Functions and uh, maybe Knative as well is, is one we're looking at. Um, the, the functions as a service across those platforms are very similar for the most part. Um, though there's just minor differences in like the, um, you know, the data that they provide back to you may be slightly formatted, slightly different. Um, but for the very most part, it's quite similar. Um, for example, we last week we had uh, someone from Auth0 uh, do an experiment, and they were able to get you know IOPipe running in Auth0 web tasks. Um, Right, without without any help from us, so it's definitely quite possible to add support for those languages uh, and other platforms. So that's kind of what we keep an eye on, um, and we are starting to see the the whole serverless uh, industry and market mature. So I think that you know in the in the near future we'll start looking at expanding to some of those those other platforms. How, how do you think about timing in terms of entering this market? And you mentioned, obviously, you talk to your customers and you look to them to guide what you're going to develop next and, and the features you're going to add and things like that and the languages you're going to support and the platforms you're going to support. Uh, but when you're starting, uh, but when you're working in an industry that's so, um, a market that's so young and immature, um, it, does that pose a challenge? Uh, either from, a, did you just have such a small sample size of, of early users, potentially, or, um, you know, or do you worry that maybe you're working with outliers? How do you think about yeah, um, it's, doing it's that? It's a really good question. In a, so in a, in a market when we such first um, released IOPipe, um, we didn't have a free plan. Um, and we were 
definitely struggling with like getting users on because there there just weren't that many like production users um, a year ago. Um, and that was definitely one of the issues was we didn't have enough data points to make decisions about product development and features. Um, so we decided to add a free tier that kind of matched up with the AWS Lambda free tier, you know, give everybody a million invocations a month, um, let them just uh, create an account very easily. Um, and that that was really uh, a good decision, I think, in hindsight, because it gave us a lot of users. Um, we have a lot of users that range from people working on personal projects, um, startups, as well as you know people, individuals in very large enterprises and even government um, who are still at the very early stages of serverless, uh, but they they have the ability to like get access to these tools um, without having to spend a ton of money. Um, so I think that was very helpful to us because we get a lot of value out of them in terms of you know getting feedback for new features and helping us with our roadmap. Um, so so I so I think for any startup who's building a product in a new uh, in a new market that's still early, I think it's very wise to make it as accessible as possible uh, in that stage. What kind of interesting things are you discovering as a result of having a broader swath of users to get feedback from? Like kind of unexpected, oh, I didn't know you were going to do that with our product. Yeah, absolutely. So for us, like the first um, the first year was about just creating the the table stakes features, which, which took quite a while, right? So the metrics uh, collection and sending of telemetry, um, the creating, you know, the ability to search through all of the data, doing some tracing and profiling, uh, and then the ability to do like alerting and then manage teams and things like that. These were kind of the table stakes things that were pretty obvious for us. Um, now that we have all of these table stakes features in the product, um, we have a good foundation to build off of. And now we're finding ourselves uh, with many directions we can take it. Um, and we've been surprised by, you know, taking like a customer request for like a really simple feature, for example, um, the ability to label a invocation. Um, so just a really simple label um, that uh, that's bubbled up from a particular invocation. So that was a very simple feature request from some users. Um, and I didn't think it was going to be so popular because we already had the ability to do custom metrics, um, which which I think are a little more powerful. Uh, but it turned out that it was an extremely popular feature. Uh, and most of our users are now using it and getting a ton of value. And once we see like how they're using labels uh, on invocations, it makes it very clear like why that's powerful. And what they ended up doing with it was really using it to identify like what's going on in events in the function. Uh, most people that we see as users are running little monolithic functions. They're not they're not running like nano services or microservices per se. Like in one function, it may have many code paths, and um, in most of the vanilla monitoring that you get out of the box, it just tells you there was an invocation, it took this long, you know, there were errors or no errors. You don't know what else happened in that invocation. And that doesn't really help you understand what's going on in, in your business or your, uh, or your application at all. So being able to quickly label an invocation like this was a canceled order or this is a new user sign up uh, allows you to then bubble up those things and understand what's actually going on in all of these events. Uh, and, and another thing that we found very important to you know, observability in event-driven applications is the ability to see every single event. Um, a lot of the tools that are 
out there today, uh, the existing tools were not built for event-driven applications, and they t- typically will just show you aggregate data. Um, you know, even in the best cases, we see the resolution of like one second uh, as the best that they can do. In one second, in serverless, you may have ten ten thousand plus events, and all kinds of things could happen in those events. And if you're only seeing a one-second view, you're really flying blind. Um, so it's really critical that tools built for serverless need to be able to collect as much data about all of the invocations as possible um, so that you have a very clear view as to what exactly is going on. And that also helps you identify things. Uh, like, for example, when you have a uh, problem, if, if your um, database is having a network issue and suddenly some invocations are failing, you want to know what's what, what really failed. Those invocations failed, but what happened in my business during that time? And with tools like IOPipe, you can basically go in and see this these customers were affected by this incident. Um, these orders were affected, for example, if you're like an e-commerce company uh, and so on. So it, it's important to be able to get as much um, data out and be able to actually find that data relevant to other things that are going on in the system very easily. Um, that's that's really like the the key to like observability is just having the tools to to find the 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 data that you're looking for to answer the to answer the questions that pop up. And again, being such an early market and still people working out what the use cases are going to be and when the when it's uh, appropriate to use this function as a service versus other uh, types of environments, um, do you find that you're in a position where you can actually help drive the market and and help guide those kinds of decisions uh, because of the the data you're getting back? You're seeing you know you're seeing data across all your different customers. Um, can you are you even in an advisory role at all? Kind of saying, hey, you know these kind of workloads. You know, based on some of the feedback yeah, we're seeing, absolutely. maybe aren't um, that's, as appropriate that's for we, versus, we definitely do. versus some we, others. We're very um, hands-on with our users and customers, question. and we, we do tend to provide a lot of advice because um, we, we've talked to, you know, a ton of people who are doing serverless, and we've, we ourselves do serverless for our own infrastructure, so we have a lot of lessons learned. Um, we try to write about as much of that as possible um, and also share, you know, share between customers. Um to, to help people understand. There, there are certain types of use cases that may not make sense for serverless. For example, if you have um, very, um, you know, very uh, predictable, long-running workloads, it may not make sense to go to, to do serverless because the cost may be, may be high in that case. Um, but it's, it's also a decision that you, know, you need to carefully make because even though the infrastructure bill may be like 10% more in the worst case, um, you don't have to deal with the, you know, the operating system maintenance, mm-hmm. um, and there's definitely going to be less operations in general, uh, and it does help you to possibly ship your business logic faster. Um, so those decisions are, you know, it, it just depends on all the factors in your business. Um, but there are also like other factors that you need to take into consideration. For example, which languages to choose. A big difference uh, in how the different languages are, are operated in the different function as a service platforms. Um, for example, um, Java-based functions may run may have a slow warm-up time. Uh, if it's uh, in a new container, it may take you know a number of seconds to start that up. But when it's warm, it tends to run you know magnitudes faster than like a node process. Whereas a node function may be may only take like milliseconds to warm up, 
Um, if it's running at scale, like, you know, millions or billions of events uh, per day um, and processing a lot of data, and it's always warm, you may want to choose like Java or another more performant language to process that data because it may end up being much cheaper um, in the long run. But if you have a user-facing application, you may want to choose something like a Node or a Golang, um, which has a much shorter warm-up time um, so that you don't end up having a high latency for your users. So there are a number of factors like this which are important. I think a lot of those will also go away as the platforms mature. You know, We've seen the cold start times uh, increasing, uh, decreasing over time as the cloud providers like Amazon puts a lot of effort into optimizing that. Um, so I think, you know, these days, you know, in a, in a typical application, you know, cold starts affect, you know, a, you know, a fraction of a single percent of events, in a in a, in an application or in a function. Um, so that may not be a big factor to many people. Um, so it just depends uh, but I think a lot of these issues will be ironed out as serverless matures and as the platforms mature. That's, yeah. And that's actually a question that I, I got from, you know, someone who I let know I was going to have this conversation and, and it's like, okay, well, what are they doing around cold starts? Is there anything special in terms of, you know, maybe from a monitoring perspective and alerting? Um, it's interesting to hear that you're sort of seeing this trend kind of moving away from that being a challenge, but curious, like what, what if anything in the product exists to help people manage that? Yeah. So one of the first things we built in IOPipe was the ability to detect and report on cold starts. Um, cause we, cause it was, uh, it was a, a much bigger issue in, you know, in 2016, it still is an issue for some users. Uh, I think it is important to have visibility around it so that, that you can quickly understand is it a factor for you to be concerned about um, if it's affecting, you know, a large percentage of your uh, invocations? You know, there are things you can do to to address that, and we provide uh, visibility into knowing if you should focus on that or not, as well as helping you understand um, how to um, how to optimize it. For example, so we can do things like memory heap dumps uh, to help you understand like where your function is uh, using up all its memory. Um, we help you understand, like, are you sizing it correctly as well? Like, cause if you choose the, the wrong CPU memory tier functions are CPU memory bound in, in Lambda anyways. Um, if you choose the wrong tier, you're getting less IOPS, you're getting, you know, less memory. It may take longer to start that up. If you bump it up to a much higher tier, even if you're not necessarily using all of that memory, um, you may end up getting, you know, better performant cold starts, um, or if it's network, um, uh, network bound, you may get better network performance by going to a higher tier as well. So we provide the visibility to all of these factors. So it's easier for you to make those decisions. Um, I think longer term, we're looking at more automatic ways to help you, um, right size those over time and possibly adjust those over time, um, based on the data that we're collecting, but that's, that's something working on, but not, not there yet. It's, it's definitely an area of interest. Okay, and then tell us a little bit also, um, you guys just announced uh, some some integration work with Spring Cloud Function. So maybe tell us a little bit about that and mm-hmm. you know where you sort of see that going in the future. Yeah, definitely. So um, we just posted a blog on how to get uh, IOPipe working with Spring Cloud Functions. And um, really, it was just some changes on our side. Um, we updated our Java library so that um, you can basically add IOPipe to your functions without modifying any code. Um, so that makes it much easier to integrate. 
Um, that, that made it work really nicely with Spring Cloud Functions. Um, so we ran some tests and documented that, um, and it just, it just works. So um, we've, we've done that with a number of other frameworks in other languages as well. Like um, we've, we've done some integration with like the serverless framework where we have an automatic instrumentation plugin for uh, people writing node functions using the serverless framework. And we've, we've worked with other ones in Python. Um, so we we te- we can we'll continue to kind of work with these other platforms that uh, users are using heavily and uh, making it as easy as possible. Um, so one of the things we've learned um, over the last two years is that you know if you're properly instrumenting your functions and really like instrumenting them like crazy, you have kind of superpowers in the ability to understand exactly what's going on. Like your developers no longer have to dig through log files um, to figure out what's going on. Definitely, like everything is just faster. um, And you just feel like you have a lot more knowledge about a working system that is that can be quite complex. Um, But the challenge that we found is that, you know, developers don't have a lot of time. Um, They're always busy. And it's very hard to get developers to properly instrument. Um, so we put a lot of effort into making it as automatic as possible um, so that, you know, for one, you can just add our library without modifying any code. Uh, and second, you know, we want to make sure that without any code changes, you get as much value as possible out of your instrumentation. So we've invested a lot into automatic instrumentation. We recently announced um, uh, automatic tracing for HTTP and HTTPS calls. Um, so you now automatically will see all of those in IOPipe without having to change any code. Um, and I think this is some this is an area we're continuing to put a ton of resources into so that you can start seeing you know database calls, mm-hmm. the performance of those, be able to get alerted if uh, a particular uh, call takes longer than you know you're comfortable with, uh, or alert you when there's anomalies uh, detected in all of these calls. So, these are the types of things that we are focused on because, you know, generally we're, you know, generally like development and ops are merging, and especially in a serverless world, developers have a lot more burden of operations, um, even if it's not officially the case. Um, we we always ask like who's on call for these when they go into production, and you know, in practice, the developers are woken up when there are problems because the problems are typically not infrastructure because it's serverless that's that's handled by the cloud provider. It's going to be code changes that may have been made. It's going to be a reliance on some third-party service, like could be like you know S3 or Dynamo, or it could be Auth0 or some other service you're relying on, um, or it's going to be like maybe some configuration with the cloud environment itself. Um, these are the three main problems that we see, um, and a lot of those are mostly understood by the developers, not the ops teams. So that's that's kind of the key for us is building a tool for developers, um, you know, from day one, instead of built for like traditional ops teams. So to kind of like crystallize that for everyone, do you have an example? um, You know, when you talked about how adding all this instrumentation can give you these superpowers and, you know, you can start to make better decisions, et cetera. Even, you know, even if anonymized, maybe an example of something that, you've seen a customer kind of go through and, you know, what was the kind of before and after scenario of what were they able to achieve um, by instrumenting and then taking advantage of these superpowers? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we we dog food uh, our own products. So we use uh, you know a lot of IO pipe is powered by serverless um, as much as we can, and that portion is also monitored by IO pipe uh, and instrumented very heavily. Um, when we so our API, we when we first released it, it was a GraphQL API. Um, it was running in containers. And we had very very big uh, visibility issues. We we're having some performance issues with some various queries that were coming through, and we really had very little visibility as to which queries were causing the issues. Um, it was really a black box, um, and we, so we moved everything over to Lambda, and we use IOPipe to instrument it. So we basically instrumented every single query uh, that came through our API, and we were very quickly able to search through. Whenever issues arose, uh, and understand like what was the query that was run, which part of the query was taking the most amount of time, and really see like line by line uh, what's going on, which helps us identify uh, very easily like how, where do we need to optimize this, uh, or do we have a do we have a, a problematic query here that's causing issues? Um, that just opens up like a new level of visibility that wasn't traditionally available because um, now. You know, we're able to instrument at the per event level, which just wasn't possible before. So that just opens up so much possibilities for for companies. Yeah, I mean, that almost sounds like a database optimization, you know, exercise that you went through. And I would have not guessed that a serverless architecture was part of that. Right. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. It's pretty cool. Okay. Well, I know we're, uh, we've, we've had you on for a little bit. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time. Where can folks kind of learn more, follow you? Um, like what, what would you recommend for folks who want to dig in more to just either understand kind of serverless broadly? Where, what have you found really useful out there for kind of um, building your knowledge about it? Where can they learn more about IOPipe? Where can they stalk you on Twitter? The usual kind of questions. Yeah, definitely. So um, you can stalk me at Twitter uh, at I'm at a d j o h n at John um, and uh, IOPipe. You can go to IOPipe.com. Uh, we also have a community Slack with a few hundred people in there. Um, I think that's a good place to talk to other people who are doing serverless in production. You can ask a lot of questions. They, they uh, everybody kind of interacts with each other and shares their wisdom with each other. Um, so I think that's a good place to go. We have a link on our on our website at IOPipe.com. Uh, for that as well. Uh, and then, yeah, there's just, uh, there's a bunch of resources out there that I think are really good uh, for learning about serverless. Um, but, uh, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I'll basically be retreat- retweeting most of that. So you can you can find it all there pretty easily. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was great. Uh, great to have you. I think we, we all learned a lot. Thanks for having me. It's a great time. Appreciate it. <laughs>